We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! Roth is out on vacation. I'm flying solo, baby! And here to join me this week uh, is our guest. He's a best-selling author, historian, and occasional defector contributor, Paul Kicks, whose new book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, is in bookstores right now. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Drew. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on because I read the book in like two days and now like like I was already radicalized like that was like a decade ago but now I'm re-radicalized and I'm ready to punch <laughs> this through a wall. It's a great book. It really, I cannot, we had uh, John Valiant on last week and I loved his book and I loved your book. We only, we don't have authors on if I don't like the book. I was gonna. I was looking through the, the 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 canon there, and I'm like, I'm not seeing too many authors. So they must have either really liked it, or they're about to pan the shit out of it. So I, nah. I think it's. <laughs> well, the other thing is that there's no sports. Like there's zero there's no sports, sports yeah. going on right yeah, now. There's zero sports. Like, like even the women's World Cup. I thought the women's World Cup. Like we started doing previews like last month, and I was like, oh, I must be coming on soon. Like I was checking like my TV and stuff. Like I'm gonna watch some soccer. It's gonna kick ass. But it doesn't start until like next week. I was like, what the fuck? Like what am I supposed to do? Like talk to my family? This is bullshit. <laughs> horrible. Paul, uh, your book is about the most critical time in the history of the civil rights movement. It was 10 weeks of protests that took place in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. Now these protests were led uh, were a make-or-break moment, not just for the civil rights movement, but also for Martin Luther King as its leader. Would that be fair to say in all regards? I think you can. we can go even bigger. I think that this is the make-or-break moment for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which King is the leader of. That was his civil rights organization. It was also the make-or-break moment for really civil rights writ large throughout the South and through America. And that's because if you look even at Alabama at that point in time, the old governor, uh, Folsom, he said, I think everybody is kind of the same person, which was a nod to civil rights. This is in the 1950s in Alabama. And that was no small thing. Right. But then months before this protest, Governor George Wallace was... Uh, put in office or was elected into office, I should oh, say. Oh, he was and a nice guy, right? Everybody he was a loved great him. guy. Super, and super into equality. Really super into equality. And his segregation now, segregation forever speech was just a few months uh, before these protests. And kind of like throughout the South and really going farther, like above the Mason-Dixon line, you began to see a further sort of segregating of America. So this is, a in in a real sense, this is like... They thought their their movement might end. They thought the movement writ large might end. And specific to Birmingham, and I'm sure we'll get into it, like they literally thought they would die for going down there. Well, yeah, because they could have, right? They so. could have, yeah. Well, I, it was an interesting book because, um, you know, things that I knew about the civil rights movement were things that I was taught in school and things that I, you know, things I read in pop history from Hampton Sides and other authors. And so when I thought yep. about the civil rights movement, First of all, I thought of King. King, to me, was the civil rights movement. Yep. But one thing your book um, cl makes clear is that the civil rights movement was not a monolith. It was not just King. And in fact, King was not necessarily trusted or necessarily liked by his colleagues and certainly not by people in Alabama because he wasn't from there. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so to set the stage for your audience, I think it's probably important to understand that, like, King and the SCLC had been had been an organization for seven years, and they had, to that point, 
no victory to speak of. There are some scholars who say, well, the Montgomery bus boycott, which King oversaw in the 55-56 period, that was certainly King's doing. And it was. A Supreme Court ruling ultimately said that you had to integrate the bus lines. But by 1963, and many journalists noted this at the time, uh, black residents of Montgomery had gone back to riding in the back of the bus as if it were like, in one of the one of the black residents said, as if it were 1943 instead of 1963. Wait, are you telling me the conservatives disregarded the laws of equality? I'm saying that, yes. I mean, because, so Alabama is kind of seen by many as the most racist and violent place in America. And Birmingham within Alabama is seen as the most racist and violent city perhaps in the world. And, you know, and I'm not really, that's not really hyperbole. Right. Because like, so just before King and the rest go down there, a black man was castrated as a means to intimidate uh, civil rights activists from trying to stage any campaign in Birmingham. Uh, castrated castrated by the Klan. Was, oh, okay. Yeah. Black women were routinely raped by police officers in their patrol cars in Birmingham. Uh, it was, the city was known as Bombingham for all of the res black homes and businesses that were bombed and, and whose, whose bombing, whose bombers were never brought to justice. It was overseen by Eugene Bull Connor, who was this virulent racist and the public safety commissioner. And just before King and the rest go down there, uh, CBS's Edward R. Murrow is in Birmingham doing a report just basically on like how Birmingham is unlike any city in America. And when he finishes his report, he returns to his producer and he says, I have not seen any place like this since Nazi Germany. So like we need to distinguish. When you say conservatives, it's not even necessarily about an ideological divide. It's really almost in far more ancient terms of good versus evil, right? Like this right. is a place that is outright evil. Uh, and that that was the place that that they targeted for their biggest risk of a civil rights campaign ever. Well, what's, what's odd that you noted was that Birmingham was actually unique as a Southern city because it was not founded necessarily with Southern interests in mind. Is, is no. that correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's it actually, it had nothing. So when Sherman during the Civil War makes his famed march to the sea, Birmingham had nothing to do with it. Birmingham was still just a bunch of rolling hills in Jefferson County, Alabama. It's after the war in the 1870s when Northern prospectors come down and they realize, oh my gosh, there's a lot of the raw materials that we need for our coal, our iron, and our steel plants up in Pittsburgh and we should completely exploit this place. It was seen from the start as a southern outpost of northern interests, uh, and that's that's. It was very much like even the setting Birmingham. It was named after Birmingham, England, which was another sort of manufacturing hub. It had nothing to do with cotton. It had nothing to do with tobacco, right? And so, as a result of that, it's you know. I, you can really see Birmingham through a 21st century lens with respect to class, because here's what happens. You have poor white people who come into Birmingham to work in these mines and factories in the, by the turn of the 20th century. 
And you have, if we go just like, if we go stay in that same period, you have the second and maybe third generation of black people who are just basically doing anything they can to scrape by, to sort of find a new life for themselves on these similar plots of land. So what happens is the poor white people realize that they're not really a whole lot better off economically than the poor black people. Both of these groups of people are working in the mines, in the factories. The work is incredibly difficult. The work is incredibly risky. And they can't, the white people can't lash out against their bosses in, say, Mountain Brook, which is a suburb of Birmingham, where all the managerial class lived. And they certainly aren't going to aren't going to lash out against their bosses' bosses, like up in Pittsburgh or those bosses' financiers in, like, New York. Right. So what they do instead is they lash out against blacks. Well, because they would they assume they would say to themselves, hey, you've made me as common as a black person, and yes. I, I don't deserve that. I'm a white person. I'm a white person. And, and you still have the old Southern racial codes that exist there. But the weird thing about Birmingham is if you actually, like, this hatred was learned because there are certain Civil War scholars who look at Northern Alabama, and they look at the sort of the hill people that were there at that time. And actually, those, what we would call today, like, hillbillies, those hillbillies didn't want anything to do with a Southern plantation owners in the states like they didn't want to join the confederacy they just basically wanted to be left alone they didn't see any problem with black people at least as as it concerns like uh as a threat to their livelihood right i was gonna say that might be a bit generous yeah yeah yeah, yeah. as a threat to their livelihood they didn't but here's what happens a couple generations pass and now there is that threat so we go back to well who can you lash out against well you couldn't lash out against any of your bosses so you lash out against black people so by the 1920s the ku klux klan has its largest clavern in birmingham there are over 20,000 members in birmingham alone and they were very public like they would lead city parades the the grand dragons and whatnot they were very much involved with politics we talked about bull connor a second ago bull connor had like barely cloaked ties to the ku klux klan i mean like he was seen at klan rallies like his his cops within the police department very much made it known that like they should take an active role in the klan so was was bull an active member of the klan uh, you could say so. Yes, you could. It's I'm, I'm equivocating only because he tried at least publicly to distance himself from any formal alliance with the Klan. It was very much understood, though. That, yeah, that, that's about as modest as he would have gotten. Yeah, it was very much understood that Bull was a guy who was tied to the Klan, like the, the Clavern was huge in Birmingham and he needed those votes. He was above all a, a real populist politician and he wanted to find a way to do a ton of us versus theming. And that's what he did for 25 years, us versus them, us versus them. And that's how he rose to power in Birmingham. For King and everyone else involved in these marches, the goal of the protests was to provoke Connor. It was to fill jail cells and to get the local cops on Connor's force so worked up that they would resort to open violence that the world would see. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, how hard is it for you on a human level to comprehend people devising what was essentially a campaign with almost like military strategy behind it with the end purpose of their own suffering? Yeah, it was very much so. 
on a humanistic level, it's it's sometimes hard to fathom. I think people today, from the remove of history, they look at the civil rights campaign and they think of it as peaceful. But I, peaceful is also like, it's, its connotation is timid. There was nothing timid about this. These people had to be the most courageous people anybody could imagine because they were literally going into a place like Birmingham and being told you cannot strike back and when you fall, you must rise again. And they had to do that because here's kind of the thinking. And this is one, there's so much stuff that you were mentioning, like how this stuff isn't taught in history. And when I was starting to research it, this is where I just became so fascinated. So first off, you've got the cat and mouse game, right? So the, so King, let's even go at a bigger level. King's not really the guy in Birmingham. He's like the, he's like the public face, but the book and that period primarily concerns three guys, Wyatt Walker, then the executive director of the, of King's SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, James Bevel, who was kind of the operations lead and, uh, Fred Shuttlesworth, who was a Birmingham pastor with ties to the SCLC, but he also helmed his own civil rights organization in the city. Now, the reason I talk about those three guys is because like, if you just start with Walker, the cat and mouse game that he wanted, it was a very much a psychological game. Walker knew that part of the reason that every civil rights campaign had failed to date was because basically the SELC had tried to go there wherever it was that somebody wanted to stage a campaign. The problem with that is that sometimes those cities themselves wouldn't be all that violent. And so they needed violence to basically be visited upon them for to create this these images of suffering. And Wyatt Walker's big insight was, well, let us go to the very site of domestic terror, which was Birmingham, Alabama, and anger every terrible white person there. Prior to that, um, they had had a massive failure of protests in Albany, Georgia. A year prior. Specifically because the cops did not lash out at them and arrested them peacefully. And basically they, they had a playbook that was like, okay, if they're going to go quietly, let them go quietly and let's not let's not make a scene of it. And they successfully did that and essentially fizzled out. They couldn't get enthusiasm for the protests going on. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Albany, Georgia, and in previous campaigns as well, there had been various law enforcement officials or police chiefs or whatever who basically used, like, the playbook that King followed was one that Mahatma Gandhi used in India. And so the, 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 the smarter, the more clever... Uh, police chiefs or law enforcement officials would read up on Gandhi and they basically came to the conclusion, well, wait, if we arrest these guys as carefully, as gently as they're going to be around us, there's going to be no violence. If there's no violence, then then nothing happens, right? Like there's, there's no, no there's nothing, there's right? no Yeah, there's, there's nothing for the press to see. One of the big things for Birmingham was we need to turn our bodies into vessels of suffering. We need to turn our bodies into metaphors of the black experience itself, dating back to the 1600s, right? And the first slave ships that settle in Virginia. We need to do that sort of work. Now, why did they need to do that sort of work? Because if they were able to turn their bodies into suffering while some New York Times reporter scribbled notes or some camera crew for Walter Cronkite shot the footage for the evening news, then that would mean that perhaps, maybe, maybe, it would those images would reach the two people in America who really needed to see it, 
which was Jack and Bobby Kennedy sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which wanted those two guys wanted nothing to do with the civil rights movement or civil rights legislation whatsoever. And King and the rest were like, if we can force you to see how what the America as we see it, perhaps then you can, you know, we're talking about these metaphors, like perhaps then you can then write a new chapter of America, which would be civil rights legislation. That was their ultimate goal. But that was even, that was as large a risk as just trying to desegregate uh, uh, Birmingham. Right, because it's a big leap of faith that you're huge that you're, leap of faith. You're counting like, on you're counting on two white guys to have a change of heart. You're trying <laughs> white people did not have a very good history of that. You're counting on two white guys, and this is this is where this is where King sort of speaks across ages. You're counting upon two white guys, and in particular, two liberal white guys who are phony. King hated this. He ran into this over and over and over again. White liberals in New York, in DC. Down south, it didn't matter. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right up until it came time to actually stand alongside him, and then they wanted nothing to do with him. The Kennedy brothers were just like that. The Kennedy brothers talked a very good game. We want equality. We want civil rights legislation. Jack even made it a big part of his uh, stump speeches throughout the 1960 election cycle. But then nothing happened in the first three years of that administration. And by the spring and early summer of 1963, you know, Bobby in particular, not just as his attorney general, but really as Jack's protector was like, I don't trust King because King is always trying to argue for equality in a nation that we are governing. So what is that actually, what is he actually trying to say about America and about us? And as a result of that, because Bobby wouldn't trust King, he's like, there's no way I'm going to allow my brother to trust him. And so they did everything in their power to distance themselves from King, to diminish the civil rights movement, everything in their power. I do want to talk more about the Kennedys in just a moment, but I want to go back to Birmingham uh, for a moment because you were talking about the vessels of suffering that King and the leaders wanted all the protesters to uh, to be, but that required training, required yeah. formal training in nonviolent protesting. So King and his lieutenants, they didn't just say, hey, come on out and bring a sign and we'll have water too. Like They had to drill these protesters. They had to... Explain to them how to how to crouch, uh, you know, when they're being beaten down. They had to explain to them, "Hey, go to jail. Don't don't fight back. Don't be violent." And so, I want to know if you knew what the specifics of that training were, and if you see it, because I, I want to bring this into the present. I want to ask you: Do you see that kind of training evident in current global protests, most notably in 2020 uh, after George, George Floyd's death? Um, so let's take the past first. So, so it was, it was let, let's talk about the operations lead, James Bevel. So his job was to take Wyatt Walker's grand plan and implement it. And just as a very quick aside, one of the things that I found fascinating about this is like, you were saying a minute ago, how it's not a monolithic, how it's not a monolith, excuse me. Um, these guys, these pastors, because they're all pastors, they all had huge egos, and some of them outright hated each other. Like right, Bevel Wyatt Walker, Walker James, didn't like each other, right? Wyatt Walker and James Bevel are a great example of this. Wyatt Walker's job is to implement the vision. I have the big grand plan. He does. James Bevel's job is to take that vision and manifest it on the streets. Wyatt Walker and James Bevel openly despised each other. Wyatt Walker tried repeatedly throughout 1962 and 1963 to have James Bevel fired because he thought that he was too young. He thought that he was insubordinate. Um, he thought that he was way too reckless in what he did. 
And also, he didn't give Walker the sort of respect that Walker thought he deserved. Wyatt Walker had a huge ego, by the way, too. Yeah, uh, but, right. but leaving this, leaving that aside, like your question about like how did they do it? So, just to talk about James Bevel for a second, James Bevel was so militant that in 1960 in Nashville. He and other civil rights leaders that were aligned with John Lewis's uh, group, SNCC, which stood for Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they staged sit-ins at diners in Nashville. There was one diner owner who locked the doors behind him and then told the staffers to fumigate it. Literally, like insect repellent was put through all the rafters, right? And is coming through and it's just the poison is just seeping in. It's a gas the doors chamber. Are, this is yeah, this is a gas chamber. And the and 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 so it was so gruesome that the Nashville firefighters who didn't certainly they did not necessarily have like an alignment with with SNCC. They just start to break down the doors and crash through windows so they can get in some fresh air so the protesters don't die. And people were like, I, I was this close to death, or I was like this close to death. And James Bevel's response is, let's go protest tomorrow too. Like that's like he he was willing to risk it all for the movement. So like when he's training anybody, he's showing them footage from Nashville. And he's saying Birmingham will be worse by orders of magnitude. And we can get to a minute to how it actually was. But that's that's the sort of training. So it's like, how did they do it? Okay, so it's about, first, no weapons, right? Second thing you need to realize is, this comes back to the idea of courage. It's a mental aspect as well. It's like, you must have the temerity to realize that the person to the right of you and the left of you is not going to fight back. And as soon as you fight back, you give in to exactly the sort of uh, demands and wishes that white people have always sort of expected of us, right? They, they expect us to fight back. They expect us to be, quote, animalistic in some ways. We will not be that way. We will be dignified. So it takes courage and strength to just basically stand there and let the, let the blows fall on you and then to get back up only to be knocked down again. And again, it just comes back to this is really the idea of suffering, right? Like you must turn your body into a vessel of suffering because when you do, that's when the white people can see you are inflicting harm, not, not just against them, but against like you are in a long line of people who've inflicted harm now, right? As a white person or, or as a black person who's received that harm. And hopefully the more conscientious white people would begin to see that. That was one of their big leaps of faith. Yeah. Now, now the big second way. part of that question is, do you see this today? No, you don't. Um, the success that Gandhi had in India, the success of the civil rights movement, that sort of success does not play out anymore. And if it did, it would be just as successful as what happened in India, which was nothing less than sovereignty without any war. And it would be just as successful as the civil rights movement, which was, and not, I mean, why do I focus on Birmingham? Why do I call it the origin story? Here's why. 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation passes. For the next 100 years, there were numerous attempts to author something like a civil rights bill. Every single one of them failed until Birmingham, Alabama came along in 1963, literally 100 years later. And then as a result of that, you see change upon change upon change upon change in a way that reflects my own personal life too. And if you, if you want to talk about that, we can get to that too. But like... This this is how you actually affect change. So to go out and protest on the streets, say that Black Lives Matter, I did it too in 2020 with my wife. As did I. 
that's great. There needs to be some sort of organizational effort after that to really affect change. You need to you need to talk about here are the specific things we want to see from government leaders. That's what they did in Birmingham, right? To just say that and by the way to say that all cops are bastards or to say that like to def- to defund the police, that's not going to work either. That's not actually a thing that works. What does work are specific demands for specific cities with specific changes in mind, and once you do that, then you move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And eventually, that's how you affect change. I do want to talk more about how the lessons of Birmingham could apply to today. But I had one more question about the story of Birmingham, because when they started the protests in Birmingham, they failed. They couldn't get Birminghamians to join in the protests. They couldn't fill jails. They couldn't do a lot of the things that were part of their explicit goals. And that changed when Bevel proposed to King and to Ralph Abernathy and to Wyatt Walker and to the other leaders that they recruit children for the effort. Yeah. Uh, and then Bevel, when King and everyone else was like, I don't know about that, he started rounding up kids on his own to march. Yeah. And when they marched, that was when the cops got violent on them and indelible pictures came out. How hard was that for you to comprehend? The idea of sending children out as vessels of suffering, especially especially given that you yourself are married to a black woman and you have kids who identify as black. Yeah. So this is probably the hardest part. And to be honest with you, Drew, like this is the part that I still struggle with today. It's the part I struggled with when I was in when I was in uh, Birmingham doing the research. Uh, to send kids to a place where Edward R. Murrow, who knew from Nazis, says this place reminds me of fascist Germany. Um and to put kids on the front lines, like this is something that Malcolm X, Malcolm X literally said, I, I would never put kids on the front lines. Bobby Kennedy was like, what were you, he was after King for what was happening. Like, I can't believe that you're willing to do this. King wasn't willing to do it. He just basically didn't say anything until Bevel decided to stage the protest. So why did Bevel do it? Well, you kind of hinted at it already. They couldn't get anybody else. So they were a month in and they realized the only the only people who might want to march are the children themselves. And so he they trained had them. less to lose than the adults did. Yeah, they had less to lose. Like so first off there's just the biggest reason the biggest reason was that Everybody who was black in Birmingham in some way or another worked for somebody who was white. And every white boss in Birmingham said, if you protest, you will lose your job. And so every black Birminghamian, and this comes down to, again, class divides, but also just like the dynamics between different cities, right? King and the rest are basically from Atlanta. All these black Birminghamians are like, look, we live in Birmingham. Like, we know what you're going to do. You're going to do what you always do, King. You're going to sweep in. You're going to have some campaign. You're going to claim it a, quote, success. Then you're going to move on. It's going to be all about you. And we're going to be left here to clean up the mess. And by the way, we're going to have to do it without any jobs. No way in hell are we going to protest alongside of you. And so eventually Bevel was the one who was like, well, there's one constituency in town that does want to protest and they won't risk losing their jobs because they don't have any. Right. And then when he said, let's use kids, eventually, like, they were just like, "There's what's that cutoff? This is, again, Pebbles' militancy. He's like, if they're old enough to walk to church, they're old enough to march down 16th Street, which is sort of the epicenter of, of uh, where, the, where a lot of the protests happened that spring. And so they did. Like, as kids as young as six, as old as 17 or 18. And, like, what does it mean? Oh, man. Like, 
the images. So when, whenever I talk about Birmingham, people are like, oh yeah, that's the one where the fire hoses, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fire hoses. But it's, I think it's important to say what it actually was. And let's actually talk about those fire hoses for a second. Those fire hoses could strip bark from trees at a distance of more than 100 feet. They could strip mortar from brick. And at less than 30 feet, they were often hitting those kids. When it hit the, when the water hit them, it just disintegrated their clothes more or less. It flipped kids in the air. Like there's this one image that's not seen in any of the civil, not seen in any of the documentaries from Birmingham of this girl literally doing cartwheels in the air and the water's just just forcing her to do these cartwheels. There's another shot of this girl being slid down um, uh, a sidewalk by the gush of water. And then the the firefighters like kept it trained on her. And she's just screaming in agony and pain. Some of the kids that day later described how like they would see the, they would, they would, they would march out in 50 two by two. And it was almost like a front line in a war, right? Like imagine yeah, like military. saving private Ryan with like the, when the, when the boat, when the, when the boat drops and you right. see all those guys in front just get leveled. That's basically like the kids in the back of those lines. That's what it was like. And then when it got to them, there's this girl who said that she, she could hear it, the water hissing. And then it hissed across her hairline, pulled it from its roots. And she's like, effectively, I was scalped that day. Cause you know, like it was, it was, it was terrible. Then there were the dogs and the dogs were everywhere and they were thrashing at kids. They grabbed kids by the throat and they threw them this way and that there were war reporters there that day who were, who had been on the front lines in like world war II or Korea. And they're covering it for, you know, whatever news outlet. And they, some of them turned to each other that day and, and they were like, I've never seen anything like this. In fact, one war reporter later said, and he was in Vietnam after this. He's like, nothing stuck with him. Nothing frightened him like double D day in Birmingham, Alabama, which was, which was the second day of the children's protest where, where all this violence broke out. So like, this is a site of absolute terror and. All the parents are watching. So for me, 60 years later, to imagine my kids in 2020, when, when Sonia and I went to go protest for the Black Lives Matter movement, we left our kids at home out of oh, fear really? of like, yeah, out of fear of like, because there were counter protesters. You'd see the stuff on the news about like, are they going to be roughed up by cops? We didn't really know what the scene was going to be like. Um, there was violence. There were, you know, in certain, in certain protests, there were, there were like fires that broke out. Right. Yep. So we didn't know exactly what it was, what we would encounter. We ended up encountering a very peaceful protest, but I say that only because like we made the choice in 2020 to leave them on the sidelines. I can't imagine. What did the kids think of that? Were they like, Hey, they kind of wanted to protest. Um, they would have been, they would have been nine and 11. So we have twin boys and a daughter uh, who's 11, who was 11 at the time. So she was 11. The boys were nine. They kind of wanted to protest. We said, no, no, not this, not this time, maybe later. But to put that in perspective of 1963, the kids who did protest a lot of times in Kelly Ingram Park, where all this stuff went down, there were parents lining the periphery of the park and they were furious, right? They were furious with Bull Connor for allowing this. They were furious with King for sanctioning it, even unofficially. And it just went on and on and on until eventually, like there was a there was a cop who went into 16th Street Baptist Church 
and said, we've got to shut this off for the day. I don't know if we still don't know today if that cop was saying this with with the approval of Bull Connor. But the cops like, I've seen enough. I can't do this anymore. And and the, uh, the civil rights leaders, James Bevel in particular, is like, yeah, we've seen enough, too. We've got to call it off for the day. But that was like, if you take the logic of we must turn our bodies into metaphors of the black experience, children had been treated that way for quite a while. So for somebody like Bevel or Wyatt Walker, and I almost consider Wyatt Walker almost immoral for a couple of things that he did that day. Um, uh, Tell me those when things. You can, so Wyatt Walker was the one. So these dogs are crazed that day and they're attacking everybody. The most famous image is of this kid have, getting like feasted upon by this dog, this big German shepherd. Right. And what Wyatt Walker later admitted was he had... He and other deputies went throughout the park that day and they blew dog whistles. They blew them oh my as God. loud as they could. And they wanted to do that because Wyatt Walker wanted those optics. He wanted every news camera to see how bad it could actually get. And he's like, you know, I say this in the book, this is a bitch of a line to draw on America's dust. And even to this day, I have to weigh, you know, what do I think of Wyatt Walker? And there's a part of me that's like, I can't believe he did that. And there's another part of me that's like, of course I understand why he did. Because he and everybody else were tired of second-class citizenship. And if it took something as horrific as the kids marching, if it took something like the dog whistles for him to blow, for to at last get the attention of the Kennedy brothers, then that's what it was going to take. That was the bitch of a line in America's dust. And he's like, I will draw that line every all, single time. You also have the the morbid benefit of hindsight in that it worked. It did work, yeah. And that was not a guarantee um, for any of these men or for any of these children either. So that itself is such an enormous risk, especially if you're a parent. Because the one thing we should be clear about, or you can you can clarify for me, is that most of these kids, or many of them, marched without telling their parents. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. A lot of the them second were... they asked mom and dad, mom and dad are like, "No, no way." Yeah, yeah. Like there were there were there were friends of Martin Luther King Jr. who's who when they when they got word that their kids were thinking of protesting, they actually sent those kids to like a boarding school for the spring. Just be like, "There's no way you're even going to be close to Birmingham." So yeah, like they the, the kids that day they knew that they, we aren't going to tell mom and dad uh, about this, um, and we're just going to show up at the church and see what happens. Um, Wyatt Walker though, he said, "If we do this, we will lead the news." And if we lead the news and we can get the attention we want. And he was right. Like, it was all over the news that night, May 3rd. Um, the following day, May 4th, it was the, 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 the image of this kid getting attacked, like feasted upon by this dog. Um, that was three columns across the front page of the New York Times. New York Times had never given civil rights that sort of uh, play before. And, and that image made President Kennedy, quote, sick. And that's when it all starts to turn. Uh, let's take a break and come back. Uh, but before we do, I just want to note that this week's episode is brought to you by Lulu, the world's first bathroom sharing app. Now, whenever you got to go, 
You'll always have somewhere to go. That's Lulu. Also now available on the blockchain. We'll be right back with Paul Kicks. Paul, that was a that was a joke ad. Just so you know, we always do a joke ad. Oh, okay. <laughs> that does that that doesn't exist. Hey, it's Drew, and just want to tell you that first impressions matter. There are no two ways around it. If you aren't already, it's time to put your best face forward by adding in a skincare routine. Skincare doesn't have to be hard if you have the right tools, and that's where Caldera Lab comes in. Caldera Lab creates high-performance men's skincare products, and the regimen leads off their product lineup, a twice-a-day routine to transform your skin. Whether men can't find the right brand or simply lack the knowledge and understanding of it, skincare is something that requires attention. And luckily, men's skincare has never been easier with Caldera Lab and the regimen. They even have this eye serum called the Icon that addresses the three most common skin concerns around the eye. Fine lines, dark circles, and puffiness. I have used this serum and another one that Caldera uses, and I do. I have a bit of a, a movie star glow as I come to bed at night and then fall quickly to sleep. Because Caldera Lab is made with top-tier ingredients, and it's a great addition to your daily routine. It takes less than a minute in the morning and at night. So if you're ready to get into your skincare routine, you can get 20% off with our code DISTRACTION at calderalab.com. That's 20% off at calderalab.com by using the code DISTRACTION. Jump into skin and first impression royalty with Caldera Lab. Next up, we are sponsored this week by Bird Dog Stretch Khaki Shorts, designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg by giving you a truly sculpted look. Bird Dogs fit much better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. Bird Dogs fix this issue by inventing cloud-knit fabric that looks just like khaki but stretches so you get a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice movement. I know because I take mine out on my bike 10 to 20 miles a day, and I look good and I bike good. Also, Bird Dogs uses anti-stink sweat wicking fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day long. The shorts also have a built-in liner plus a zipper pocket for keys or credit cards. So go to birddogs.com slash distraction and enter the promo code distraction for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash distraction and the promo code distraction for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your Bird Dogs off. We promise you. And we're back with Paul Kicks. We're talking about the civil rights movement, uh, and we're going to talk about how that applies to today. Now, King's explicit goal uh, with the marches in Birmingham was to get the rest of the America and the Kennedys, as you noted, to see the brutality of the Birmingham Police Department on their TVs and in their newspapers. Paul, was this goal only achievable in 1963, back when news and media options for Americans, all Americans, were severely limited and often uniform, how hard would it be to break through that clutter now with such iconography? I actually feel like in some sense it would be almost easier because if you think of the images that have, like that was, so the kid that was attacked, Walter Gadsden, by that dog and feasted upon, that was viral for its time. Right. If you look at what, uh, I think her first name is Darnella, uh, Darnella Fraser, who was a 17-year-old who shot the video of um, George Floyd being suffocated. That reached every outlet in the world basically the same day. And so it had an even 
more immediate virality than what it took the rest of the nation to have during this during the spring of 1963. The question is really like, how do you maintain it after that? Yeah. And and this is where it takes concerted effort, you know, like I don't if you want to argue for change today, you would need to think you need to think it through as the SCLC did. You'd need to think, okay, well, what is our first order objective? If we accomplish that, what do we accomplish after that? There needs to be some sort of hierarchy within the movement. Like the movements dating back at least in the last, let's say 10, 15 years, be it along class lines, like um, the 99% movements of, 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 uh, of New York about a decade ago, or far more recently, something like Black Lives Matter. They've been more horizontal in structure. I even know like with Black Lives Matter, there has been an actual sort of hierarchical uh, structure to it. More so than Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, 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 yeah. More, more so than Occupy Wall Street. But even so, the aims are disparate. And so as a result of that, there isn't a... I don't know. I'm I've, I'm not actively involved in it, and nor do I frankly want to be. I always want to be the one who's writing about it rather than the activist uh, himself. Um, hey, me too. There you go. <laughs> but what I would say is that, like, if you want to, if you want to see change, you really should study history rather than say, "Well, we're going to try it differently." And any or I just I just don't think that horizontal movements where where everybody's like, well, let's have everybody feel good. This is unfair, but I'm going to say it anyway. Let's have everybody feel good about themselves and good about their place in the movement rather than let's try to, let's try to um, put forth some objectives that we're going to see carried out. Um, the result of that is that nothing really happens today because it's just too diffuse. Well, that, that's uh, what I was going to note, because even though the video of George Floyd's murder was seen by everybody, and yeah. triggered all these protests, not just here, but worldwide. Um, and and during those protests, by the way, we saw police be violent to protesters. Not only be violent, but also box them in, kettle them, yeah. so that they could be so that they could brutalize them. And yet, in my mind, nothing really came of it. Police no. departments still essentially dominate not just cities, but their entire budgets particularly in New York. So it, it makes me wonder if a mass civil rights movement can work in an age of information overload. So I think that, I think it just comes back to objectives, right? Objectives and language and messaging. Uh, this is where I fall back on uh, the fact that all cops are bastards is not very helpful. Uh, that's not something the SCLC would have said. Uh, in fact, they made they took great pains, even in Birmingham, to not diminish Bull Connor, which would have been very easy to do. Uh, right, because because twenty twenty three me would say, "Hey, if you're not going to do that, you, well, you're a centrist asshole. If you're if you're not, yeah." Even going and I would, I would, my my counter to that would be, you know, is it about the perception from the left or the right, or is it about actual work to be done? So let's like let's stay for in the present day for a moment more. Um, defund the police. No, that no. people, nobody actually wants that. People actually, like, if you go into minority neighborhoods, you'll see a lot of black and Hispanic people who say, I want representation on the streets because there is an epidemic of violence happening in my streets, right? This again comes back to 
<laughs> one of the things that King said a long time ago, like white liberals assuming they know what's best for everybody else in the nation. Um, it's a line that my wife uses quite often too. Uh, and you. by the way, like my wife <laughs> and I consider ourselves liberal. I personally have begun to distance myself from, from the progressivism I knew as like a 20 something, just because I find the left, the far left today to be too strident. And we can get into that too, if you want, but specific yeah. to, Specific to um, what could be asked for today, what does, like, let, look from Ferguson through Minneapolis, what is one consistent? One consistent is literally these weapons of war and shields of war are being frequently used by cops. Cops, SWAT teams now look like they're some sort of special forces armament unit, right? Yes. It's like, and... No, if you ask any cop, and this is this is coming from a guy who used to cover a lot of cops and a lot of courts, they'll say you don't actually need that on the streets. That's not effective, right? right. You don't need to come in with an AR-15. You don't need to have on the military vest, right? You don't need to play cowboy. Well, because right away when I just by donning donning that stuff, I am instantly an antagonist. I am yes. not protecting and serving you. I am I am here to fight you. I'm here to fight you. Yes. Like I, when I was living in Boston, um, uh, before we moved to Connecticut, uh, I did a lot of stuff in cops and courts and like, I was, I was following gangs around and then I was like doing a story from like, basically like how the cops were trying to integrate into them and try to persuade the next generation. Right. And the cops did classic sort of community policing stuff. Let's go hang out at night at the YMCA and let's just shoot hoops with the kids. Right. Let's give them some after school stuff to do. That's actually good police work. So, but like this idea, like, so what could be, what could be asked for today? Well, you could say, drop all the military shit, like return it to just cops being cops serving a community. That's an objective that could be, that could happen anywhere. But you're saying you, it should be city by city though, right? It you should were, be city by, because look, wherever King went, he, he did it at like the most he did it in Birmingham. He didn't say, I'm going to take on Alabama. I'm not going to take on the South. I'm going to take on the representative, the, the metaphor in some sense of the most violent, segregated, racist place in America. I'm going to choose that as where I'm staging my protest. And if I can change the segregation there, if I can integrate Birmingham, there isn't a city, city in America that I can't integrate. And that's basically what happened. Like he integrates Birmingham. They signed this accord to begin to integrate. And then basically every other Southern city throughout the South and in the North, in Chicago, out West in LA and San Francisco, up in New York, like Jackie Robinson suddenly reemerges, like I'm fighting for civil rights again. All these cities are like, we want our Birmingham. So the Kennedy brothers, yes, they're enlightened, but the real reason, the real reason that they decided to, to back civil rights legislation, it's because they didn't want to have to legislate 75 separate Birminghams. They're like, shit, we've been forced into a corner now. We need one bill that will, that will address all of this civil unrest. Like you affect change at the local level, not by national initiatives. That's just the way it happens. So like if I wanted to, if I wanted to, if I wanted real police reform, I don't stage a national protest. I say to everybody, go to New York. We'll take on the NYPD and Eric Adams first. Those are the yeah. people. Because that's, to me, that's sort of the flagship shitty police department. 
Yeah, in you go United you go States. to New York, you go to L.A., you go to some place where you're like, there's been some practices here that we don't agree with, and you acknowledge things that like cops would would say, oh well, thank you for acknowledging that. When some of it is like the number of uh, people who've been killed by cops has decreased over the past ten years. That's a statistical truth. You say that, and then you say, but guess what? We don't like the way that, that policing happens in our neighborhoods, right? Like in Ferguson, there's to, just, to take, just to take an example, to go back like a decade or so ago, Ferguson is awful. One of the things that makes it awful is the fact that, it, that the cops would routinely, like as a way to raise more money for the local coffers, public coffers, they would just go through and like, fine every black citizen they could like you're loitering you're i don't know we searched you and we found a broken taillight or we searched you and we found some weed on you now now you have to pay 200 bucks to get out of jail and so you know there the law enforcement the black community would say they didn't like the way they were policed because they didn't think it was an actual police force, right? They didn't think it was actually justice being done. And that's because of the way that they were policed. Right, it was a shakedown. It was a shakedown. Everything that happens in Ferguson as a result of that are representative of the corruption, right? So it's kind of like, I guess what I'm suggesting is if you want to go to New York and if you want to say, if you wanted to go to Minneapolis and say, um... What like what caused George Floyd to be suffocated like that? Rooted out, yes, pu- punish Chauvin, which I'm glad that finally that there was a cop that was punished uh, for <laughs> right. what happened. Yes, of course. Um, but after that, it's like rooted out at the level beneath it. You know, How, what what's the actual root cause? That's also what the SCLC was trying to do. They're trying to to cement some sort of change that can be felt over time in that city. Uh, and that's how you actually win, I would argue. Can you do that when you have uh, PBA heads in virtually every city tweeting out that, oh, fucking cry some more liberals and shit like yeah. that? And also with people um, doing essentially online activism, staring at their phones and being pissed rather than actually going out and taking action. Can you overcome those obstacles? That's the biggest. That's I mean, it's, that's just the. The idea that action, that activism can be done on social media is ridiculous. Um, I'll give this a current day context. So my next book is going to be about, and I can say this because we just signed the deal. Thank you, Rats. Thank you. Uh, So after the fall of Kabul, there are these Afghan veterans, some of them aligned with special forces who basically said, yay, we got out 130,000 people. But guess what? There were 350,000 wartime allies with whom we served. So after the fall of Kabul in August of 2021, these vets decide to go back into Afghanistan. And their goal is to get out every last wartime ally left behind. And they call it the final mission. And that's what the book's about. They've they've saved President Biden's bodyguard. They've saved people with whom Prince Harry served. They've saved Af- female Afghan politicians who are at risk of being killed by the Taliban. My point is, that's action, right? But last year, there was this bill, the Afghan Adjustment Act. 
And basically it was going, it was attempting to scale the work of this small band of Afghan veterans who were doing this, like going in and getting people out using the force of the U.S. government. Okay. And it did not look like, first off, it didn't even look like it was going to get a reading. And what it took was not all the vets from uh, the IAVA, the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans Association, tweeting about it. What it really took was a small band of those vets going to Congress literally for more than a month on end, sitting near the steps of Congress and demanding that the bill be passed. Now, it was it, the bill was finally up for a vote in the lame duck session. And it actually failed to pass this last year. However, every single politician with whom I've spoken said none of this would have happened. And the this is not only the reading, like actually having the bill voted on, but as part of the larger omnibus bill, there was tons of coverage in like the New York Times. None of this would have happened were it not for the small group of soldiers of community leaders who decided to literally just sit and stay at Congress until they could be heard. It's so easy to ignore a tweet. And in fact, the algorithm makes it even easier to never even see it, right? Yeah, I've, I've trained myself to ignore tweets. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's good for your mental health. It's good. It is. Stay off Twitter, Drew. That's my that's my words of advice to you. Now you'll yeah, make so like, easier, so. it's it's uh The reason, if I'm animated about this, it's only because A- it's so clear to me how if you want to affect change, you can do it today because history shows numerous examples of like how it was so clearly won, how, how, how you can do the things that everybody says is impossible, but it just takes effort and it takes like actual action. Um, yeah. Yeah. And persistent in that. Action. And persistence, tons of, Tons of persistence. Yeah. Let, let me go back really quick because it, it still connects to today. And I want to talk about the Kennedy brothers because in the book, they start off they start off in the book, as you described, so painfully similar to the modern Democratic establishment that I hated them instantly. I was because like, <laughs> they liked the black vote, but they don't want to actually do anything to help black people because it might cost them politically down the road. Everything yeah. is, everything is. Oh, okay. How does this affect our chances in the next election? So yeah. it's always about the next election. It's never about what can we do now. Now, you in the book, you, the narrative thrust that you give is that both men, particularly Bobby Kennedy, came around and they saw that passing civil rights legislation was the right thing to do and that the right thing to do was more important than what was politically expedient. Now, yeah. I want to ask you, this is the hardest question. Do you, do you think that depiction in your book was a hundred percent accurate or to be a bit rude? Did you simplify it a bit? Because as we know, uh, it was LBJ who passed the civil who, rights act, yeah. not JFK who was killed later that year. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that I'm trying to distinguish there is, who is the one that finally agrees to bring this to a vote? And that is JFK. And JFK does it in large measure, in large measure for a couple of different reasons. Number one, he wasn't dumb. Bobby was telling him, and he could see this for himself, that the Democratic establishment was turning against him. There were uh, Dixiecrats in the South who were just like, 
we've got to do something here because I can't continue. I can't have a Birmingham in my city now too, right? Like there has to be some sort of solution that's applicable to everybody. So, so there is this political movement that now is suddenly in favor of something that everybody in Washington thought would never pull well, which is a civil rights legislation. That's one end of it. The other end of it is sort of the, the brothers themselves and their ambition. If you go back and you read like biographies of them or even their own writings at that time, what Jack and Bobby both say is they wanted to do something that was almost epoch defining in their in their political lives. Um, a legacy thing. That, right? A legacy thing. What would that be? And it so it took Bobby. You know, and this is this is there's just stories at top of stories in this period from 1963. It takes Harry Belafonte and James Baldwin, <laughs> who play minor but very significant roles in this book too, to approach Bobby and basically say, "Look, you've been looking at this as Jack's protector, as a politician. We want you to see Birmingham and everything in its wake through the eyes of a father." And that's where they got to Bobby. Because Bobby had eight kids by the spring of 1963. And One of them turned out to be a real night. peach, I just want yeah. to say. <laughs> and that he was alive by then, yeah. Real and real w- primo Kennedy shit. Yeah, the, the best of the best. Um, and uh, they had a ninth on the way, Bobby and, and Ethel. So like big, 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 big Irish Catholic uh, household. And okay, so Bobby's like, oh, okay, I can see this now. Like the suffering that these kids suffered, that could have been one of my own. And- that's where he starts to work on his brother. And finally, his brother sees it as he does. To the question of how simplistic it is, I think Jack knew full well what was going to happen. And in fact, he said to the Commerce Secretary uh, at the time, we're going to very likely lose a lot of votes for doing this in the South, but I feel like it's the right thing to do. And so in June 11th, 1963, he makes a primetime address where he sponsors civil rights legislation. There was one member of his cabinet that thought that that was a good idea, and that was his brother Bobby. And he listened to Bobby. That well, day. it's leadership, isn't it? I mean, that it is, is what that is what you that's what you elect leaders for. You don't elect them because you hope that they win next time. You know, or you know, I just it it struck me as when I was reading it. It struck me as, you know, this thing that, like, the establishment says it's not possible. And, you know, as, and I hear that so much now with everything. Oh, it'll never get past the Senate. Oh, it'll never, it'll never get past the House. Oh, Supreme Court will strike it down because the Supreme Court is bullshit, which it is. And mm-hmm. so it, it's almost like the defeatism is baked into the equation even before you want to get started. And I feel it, like some of that has got to be, you know, on both and both political parties— there needs to be a real awakening to the idea that our le- our elected leaders are just literally way too old. Just literally oh my way God. too old. Yeah. They don't represent senior shit. Yeah, yeah. Of so if you look at if you look at just Jack and Bobby Kennedy, Jack is 46 in 1963. Bobby is 38 in 1963. These are young-ish men, right? Like we had in Obama a guy who was young-ish. He was Gen X. Yeah, but then he got rolled by Mitch McConnell, which ended up with the Supreme Court we now have. Which ended up with the Supreme Court we now have, yeah. So I would, and you know, like, I would love to see some sort of centrist Republican sweep into Kentucky and primary Mitch out. I don't know if it'll happen, but I think... (laughs) 
if you look at like broadly speaking, we're, we're, you and I are talking at a time where there's a lot of strife in Hollywood with respect to like the union striking, right? Solidarity. I'm of, on strike, baby. You're on strike. There you are. Fantastic. Um, uh, I feel like, you know, there's, there's just a lot of unrest and there's just a lot of people like, this is bullshit. Like this, this needs to change. And the Democrats, the, the Democrats need a much deeper bench than they currently have. Uh, the Republicans need to get out of the cult of Trump. And, you know, I don't know if it's DeSantis. I don't think it necessarily is. DeSantis like, is younger than me, by the way. I can't. Is he? Fucking, oh, my God. Yeah, he's like a year younger. <laughs> Brutal. But like, okay, the only upside to DeSantis is just literally his age, right? Like, okay, at least he's middle-aged rather than Trump, who's in his late 70s. But, buddy, that is that is a real... That's a real reach for optimism with Ron DeSantis, though. <laughs> but, I, but I guess, like, for a long time, America had elder statesmen. You always had senators who were a part of a much older generation. There's nothing—I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. It's just at the creep of this— and I hate to put it on like our parents' generation, Drew, but damn it if the boomers didn't ruin this too. Like, no, you, just, you can make fun of my parents. It's fine. Yeah. Like they just, the boomers won't let anything go and it's time for them all to retire. I think the first step to actually have America resemble what its constituents want is to elect younger people, 50 or younger, right? Um, I wish we could have a cutoff in how old you could be to serve in the Senate. Because, like, I'm from Iowa initially, and uh, somebody like Chuck Grassley, like, that dude's, dude, he's going to be- <laughs> He in died his, 20 like, years ago, man. Yeah, it's like, he's going to be in his 90s by the time his six-year term is up now. So come on, man. You don't represent America anymore. So that, I would say, is like, it, that's that's the first step. And then after that, it's just- it comes back to what do you actually want to do on the ground? And I also think that like this, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I want to have a position that is progressive, that will advance the nation. I am overwhelmingly in favor of advancement. I think we should always move ahead. But the biggest thing I see between today's progressives and say those of 60 years ago, is the stridency and the diminishment of anybody who's not them. Uh, and this is, and maybe it's just a function of social media. Uh, but to but to say, to say, well, now you're just some center left or center right asshole. It's like, do you know how big FDR's tent was? FDR had to hold his nose to allow people like Dixiecrats into the New Deal. And guess what? He got the New Deal, right? Like you have to have people who aren't exactly your friend, but aren't exactly your enemy either. And say, yes, for some common cause, like let's, I don't know. I don't, does that, does that strike you as, as too much of a pipe dream? What do you think? No, I think that's interesting because I have for the past decade, roughly, it's always been my, my thought that if you are moderate, well, you're not really liberal. You are you are either capitulating to the right, or you kind of are the right. You know, I, I remember. You know, there is a. I'm going to refer to a tweet, and that that that's probably part of the problem. But it was. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm you know I'm I'm socially, uh, I'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative. I 
I don't like the problems, but the cause of the problems, those are great. Those are cool. <laughs> so that was that was the joke, and it was great. It was a great joke, but it felt very true to me. It felt that um, you know the people who are in the center, and for a long time I included Joe Biden in there, although there, he has surprised me in some ways. Um, I Do felt- you think that Biden is a good president? Because by various markers, you would have to say that he has accomplished a tremendous amount. Well, that's just the thing. The first year or so, first year or two of his of his uh, term, I thought he was essentially a lousy president. I did. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that necessarily anymore. I think he is now an okay president. But, um, but I do note uh, people like him, and particularly uh, people like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, um, who I just read a big lengthy piece about in The New Yorker. Um, they seem to have unlocked a it was i okay i'm i'm babbling here but i remember another op-ed about biden which said okay i think it was by greg Sargent and wapo which was okay what biden is doing is he's saying he's saying look i don't it's not the republicans i have a problem with it's the MAGA republicans i know some of your republicans are all good it's just all the trump assholes that are basically bringing you down folks and you know i'm not gonna work with them and that has kind of split the Republicans into factions and has gotten some of those people into his tent, which is very good, which is very shrewd of him. And I admire that. But there is all, there's still that liberal part of me that is like, and I mean very liberal, which is like, you know, when people tell me they're, they're moderate, I don't trust them. It's the same way where like when people say, oh, I'm an independent, I don't believe you're an independent. I think you're full of shit when you're an independent. Do you, you think you're indecisive rather than an independent? Is that no, what it is? I think I think that you are almost certainly a Republican who wants to pretend that they give the other side that they like to hear the other side out, but it's bullshit. But I also I think there are Democrats who do the same thing and they say, Well, I'm independent, but they they vote blue all the way down the ballot every time. Yeah, I've always been a I've always been a Democrat. I've always been a liberal. When I was younger, I was a progressive. I mean, you know, Sign and I get married. Like Sign and I get married at a time when like there were very few interracial couples back in Dallas where we got married. Um uh, and we used to make a joke, like, look, there's an, <laughs> there's another interracial. Like when we would see one, <laughs> we would be like, nudge, oh, look, an interracial. <laughs> let's um, go, let's go ask him on a dinner date. Whoa, what are what are they doing? <laughs> uh I want to say two things. Number one, I, this book is so very personal to me because it is, um, you see this progression. I see this progression very clearly. Civil rights sponsorship where JFK says, but for Birmingham, we wouldn't be here today, leads to the Civil Rights Act, leads to the Voting Rights Act, leads to King's death. Yes, but I also think a new life for his country. After that, you've got women's rights, you've got gay rights, you've got the rise of a black middle and upper class across uh, the latter half of the 20th century. You've got Obama's presidency, but really you've got something that, that's at a far more granular level. It's somebody like me being able to marry somebody like Sonia from inner city Houston, right? Mm-hmm. In a former Jim Crow state like Texas. And for the, us- In a to- future Jim Crow state like Texas. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I, we both still, I mean, Sonia is like a lifelong Texan and we both still love Texas. Um, uh, there's a, when we first moved down there, there was this, there was this buddy of mine who says, my father-in-law said, when I moved to Texas, welcome to Texas. The only state that was once a Republican by God will be again. Right. <laughs> like that's Texas, right? Yeah. So like, 
So like, but like that enables us to get married. That enables us to raise our three kids today, right? Nobody harasses us for who we are. Like we would have been 60 years ago. We wouldn't have been allowed to be, you know, be married 60 years ago. This is real progress that happens in America. And what I would say is progressives today, yes, they should always strive for more, but they should look to the progress that has happened. And instead, the reason I've moved from to more liberalism from, from progressivism has a lot to do just frankly with like my love of the First Amendment, my love of being a writer, like everything that's happened around cancel culture, around you can't think that, you can't say that, you can't have that idea. Um, I'm just like, like you and I are of the same generation where, do you remember uh, Andres Serrano's uh, Piss Christ? That was this- Yeah, I do. Yeah, so Piss Christ was, a, so for the younger listeners- Piss Christ, this this New York, I don't actually know if he's a New York artist, but he's an artist who's who had this this portrait of Jesus literally made from his excrement, and it won it won like all these awards in the eighties and nineties, and everybody who was a Christian conservative Christian back in the eighties and nineties they wanted to ban it. They're like, you can't stage Piss Christ. And my position, which I always thought was a great sort of classic liberal. Uh, position was like John Stuart Mill style, style liberalism was we can debate its merits. You can be opposed to it being staged in the Met or wherever, but to ban it, no, you can't do that. Like that's, that's the, that's the bridge too far. Right. And, and I hate to sound like old man who's shouting at clouds, but too late. my biggest issue now with millennials and the Gen Z people who were progressive as progressive as I once was, was like, they are happy to say, no, that should, this idea should be banned or this person should be canceled or that person's career should be struck down. And my position is like, no, you just like, I still believe with all of social media's ills that the best way to defeat hate speech is with more speech. And I don't know if that's naive, but I'm just like, I've seen it work in my life and I think it can continue to work today. You're moving around like maybe you don't believe that. Yeah, I uh, I want to go back because I don't necessarily agree that progressives are calling for the banning of things. What I think, first Look of all- the woman who wrote that book- um, uh, what's her name? Janine Cummings. She wrote that book. She wrote that novel whose protagonist. Oh, American Dirt. American Dirt. Okay, but it Bo didn't get banned. It was the best. No, there were bookstores in California who suddenly said, we will not have your reading. They banned her from appearing because she was a white woman with Puerto Rican. I think it doesn't even matter. Like, it's just like here again, like, it's like if you can imagine someone else's empathy, you should be able to at least create. If people don't want to buy the book, if they think that what that you're that you're culturally appropriating, you can say all of that. And by the way, like, not. <laughs> I feel like I need to equivocate all the time. But what I would say is, especially as a white guy who's married to a black woman who has been culturally appropriated, what I would say is that I am extremely in favor of. Uh, the cultural gatekeepers paying special attention to minority creators who have been sidelined by those same cultural institutions for generations. Cause yes, that is something that absolutely happened. But I would argue that, that then that's just one small example, but it's like, I see that as like, that's something I wouldn't want to see happen, but I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that I think the broader argument that progressives make 
is that first of all, there's a lot of false equivalency where, um, you know, the American Dirt author, you know, doesn't have a few book signings. That is not the equivalent of Ron DeSantis banning board books about yeah, gay children. Absolutely all not. Way. Absolutely not. The yeah. other thing is that, um, you know, and my argument was always um, that the people who say I'm canceled, oh, the wokes are coming after me. They're not, they're not, first of all, they're not being silenced. Many of them have prominent positions at places like the New York Times. Mm -hmm. What they don't like, what they want freedom from is freedom from scrutiny. And that is at the heart of the matter, that they can't abide getting shit on when they say something shitty. And that has been kind of the nut of online discourse for me for the past 10 years or so. I agree with you completely on that, right? Like if you think, if this, this is again, like this is exactly where I stand, right? Like if you're going to say something, if you have some, even right now, like if somebody came at me and said, your position's bullshit, uh, in the comments of, of this podcast, um, D I'd they say, will. okay, great. I, I can get And they you. will. <laughs> that's great. Um, uh, I, I welcome that. Right. I think that's, I think that's fine. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm actually completely in agreement with you there. We should always be able to have a back and forth, even if that back and forth is not in agreement, and especially maybe even if it's not even civil, right? Like if people want to be nasty, they can. I can choose to respond in a similar mode, or I can choose to stay silent. Um, but the main thing is like, don't don't take this podcast down, which you won't do. No, we won't. <laughs> I mean, the, and the other problem with me is that the, pe the other problem that I have is that the people who say, you know, I want civility and I want, you know, I want to be able to debate you because you hear that from the fucking Joe Rogans of the universe over and over again. Let's mm -hmm. have a debate. Is that they're really not acting in good faith. They're not. They want, they want to have a debate with you, not because they actually are open to your ideas, but so that they can, they can own you, uh, you know, in an interview and then it goes viral and everyone's like, ah, see, Sean Handy owned that guy and all that shit. Is so, that, it, so that's, yeah. yeah there's yeah, a yeah. lot, to me, there's a lot of bad faith and that makes it hard for me to want to reach out across the aisle to a lot of conservatives or to even a lot of blue dog Democrats like Joe Manchin. I want to fucking talk to Joe Manchin. Fuck that guy. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, so it's, if I am sound, uh, a bit tongue-tied here, I think it's because I honestly don't quite know what the solution is going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we ever really do, right? Like King had this thing. I love this. I wrote this book for really for the kids as a guide for they for how my kids could lead their own lives. Um, and part of it, it was like, just the mentality that those guys had to have, the courage to do what they did, the perseverance, the ingenuity. King had this quote to to echo what you were just saying, where he's like, we can never see the entire staircase. We can just take the next step. And I feel that like that's always going to be true uh, of America, right? Um, whatever our aims are, we can only do like, well, what's the, what's the next thing right in front of me that could actually maybe get me closer to that aim of whatever that aim is like, what would it be for you? Like what, what, what would you be looking for in a, in an America drew? Uh, a higher minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> a better minimum wage. And, uh, I, I want, uh, I want abortion back. Uh, that would be mm -hmm. good. Cause I'd like, I'd like to get an abortion one day. If, <laughs> if, you know, if you and I ever fall into bed together and something happens, what well, gee whiz, I want to have sovereignty over my body. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of things, but you know, I, I don't think I'm, 
I'm a leader in that regard. I think what I'm looking for is someone worth following, you know, and and I think that that that's not always it's not always hard to find, and perhaps I'm too picky about it. But uh, you know, all, all I can do is, you know, and I think I think maybe I think maybe this is not far enough, but you know, vote the right way and speak my mind. But you know, I've been doing that for a long time, and you know, I I don't think it's quite enough. I think it's you know, as as you have illustrated. And as the book has illustrated, you have to get out there. You have to get out there and you have to have a plan and you have to have goals that are smart and uh, achievable. You have to want to achieve the small things before you can get to the big things. So I think all of that is is really valuable and I'm glad we were able to talk to you about it. Now, uh, I have to have you remember a guy, Paul. So every week we remember an athlete of your, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. So Paul, are you a sports person at all? I am. Okay. I was at ESPN. Well, I've written for you, and I was at ESPN in some capacity for 17 years. Oh, yeah. You wrote for Defecto. That's a good point. Your guy of the week is Mike Timlin. You remember that guy? I do remember Mike Timlin. Oh, perfect. Perfect. If it's just a faint remembrance, that's good, because he was on the 2004 Red Sox, so I just wanted yeah. to do Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like vaguely recall Mike Timlin. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Uh one more, we're gonna uh, we're gonna open up the uh, the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. We only have time for one, Paul. All right, okay. And you might all right. this one might stump you. This is from John. He writes in, "What's the worst music video for a great song? I vote today by Smashing Pumpkins. Vote jokes on you, John. I don't like that song, but anyway, Paul, can you remember a song you really liked that also had a terrible music video?" <sighs> Every music video Pearl Jam ever did. Wow. Wow. So you didn't like like a, a good concert video? <laughs> it was if it was if it was a music video that was directed that was not a concert one. I think Jeremy was Jeremy was kind of weird. Yeah, Jeremy was, of course, a VMA video of the year winner. So uh. Yeah. That was that, just, that that was a real piece of art. I mean that that had real that was a real there was a real story to that video. That, that, here here's the thing though without but like that it's that is to me kind of reflective of I feel like every music video is bad. Honestly. Like there is an image and a progr- a narrative progression in my head, especially like Jeremy if it's about something like some sort of song or it's like it's about a story in some way that the actual story that the director will put upon it never really equals. Uh, and it always kind of screws up in some way. And it's just like sort of bizarre. Uh, I think, remember, what was that Eurythmics one with the cow? Sweet Dreams? Oh, I hate that song. Oh, I hate that song so But much. the video is even worse. <laughs> I believe. Well, that's the other thing is, you know, I grew up watching MTV and all this, uh, like, for hours on end. Worshipped them, dial on TV, loved all that shit. And you go back and you watch it now, and all the videos look like they cost like a buck fifty because they did, because they did. They, yeah. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, like they had like like star wipes and all this shit. <laughs> what's your what's your what's 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 the song that you love that a video that you hate? Oh, I mean the one that always scarred me, and I think that means it was a great video. Was one by Metallica because they took uh, they took footage from Johnny Got His Gun and spliced it into the song, and it oh, is man. just. Absolutely fucking dire and so. I don't disturbing. think I've ever even seen that music video. Scary. Wow. If if you want to be scared to fucking death, watch that video. But don't say I didn't warn you because it is historically <laughs> disturbing. Now, 
Uh, our guest was Paul Kicks. The new book is You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. That's in bookstores right now. And I also just wanted to note The Saboteur, your book before that. That's oh, also you, in bookstores. And I read that and I, I loved that book as well. I, I really did like both books. It was, Man. I really mean that. They were, they were fantastic. And I can't wait for the next one. Paul, is there anything else you'd like to plug before I get to the credits? No, no, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Drew. Uh, no, no, please. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com or even call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909-PANERA-0. I'll be back with Roth next week. Paul, thank you for coming on. Thank you. <laughs>